Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So a big part of what makes Worldly, Worldly, and, and you know, the podcast you know and love, well, it's, it's you. It's, it's the listeners. Uh, we really need your help with planning our future. So that's why we want your help to make the show even better as we go down the line. What we need is you to fill out a short survey and give us responses that'll help us understand who's listening, how your listening habits have changed in the past few months during, you know, everything that's happening, and hopefully how we can reach even more people. Go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. That's voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. And help us make Worldly even more of the show that you know and love. Europe is hitting the much forewarned and scary second wave. Rates are starting to rise in countries across the continent, even places that didn't have that big of a problem the first time around, with only a few countries exempted. And the worst, by far, is Spain, which saw a massive outbreak early in the epidemic and is now seeing another one, almost certainly the worst on the European continent today. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about what's going on in Spain, and then we're going to talk about more broadly what's happening in the rest of Europe. Just how bad is this second wave, and what does it mean in terms of the spread of the virus to the rest of the world? I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. I have a feeling a lot of our listeners are going to think I lobbied for this episode really hard behind the scenes. Well, that's not entirely wrong. This was your idea. This was your idea, actually. This was my idea? This is your idea. Okay, this was my idea. Okay. It was emphatically not my idea. I'll just say. That's right. This was my idea. I like this idea. Not that I have any problem with it. To be fair, Alex is Spanish, as you may, longtime listeners may remember, uh, has Spanish Spanish citizenship. And so uh, we'll be our resident expert. He also did a very good piece early in the epidemic about Spain's first wave. Um, that interviewed a surprising number of American expats that were living there. I guess you have a lot of ties in that community. A lot of Americans like hanging out in Spain. But now it's probably not the most fun place to be. Uh, And I guess maybe we should start by talking about um, literally what is happening in Spain, right? So throughout Europe, uh, and in Spain particularly, where the cases are rising really, really sharply, recording uh, record high daily numbers of cases, 
So there, there are lots of different factors that went into Spain hitting this point, right, where, th- where things are getting really bad. Uh, though one of the more notable things, and something we'll get into uh, across the European case, is that death rates haven't written, is that death rates have not risen to the highs that they were earlier in the epidemic. But let's let's start with why the case count is so high. Uh, Alex, uh, one of the explanations when we were talking about this beforehand in the episode that apparently I came up with, but you contributed much of the research to, uh, is that Spain has a, um, a very emphatic nightlife culture. Uh, and it, it, this is sort of enabled by the government in the wake of the first outbreak. Yeah, I mean, Spain just has a rife nightlife. Uh, it's And it's it's what people love to do. Everyone's out from late at night to early in the morning, and that's on weekdays as well. Obviously, on the weekends, it's a bit more hearty, but uh, otherwise, you know, going to bars, being with your friends, all of that, uh, that's kind of like the cafe. Everyone's just at bars having a good time, uh, meeting with people after work and, and and letting off some steam. And that is so ingrained in the culture in Spain that, it was when there was a lockdown for months after the initial wave earlier this year. And there was tons of pushback being like, well, I can't go to the bar now. You told me I have to stay at home with my family. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, like that's insane. Uh, I should be going out. And so uh, that, that put a lot of pressure on the government. There are other reasons that we'll get into later, but that, that was sort of one of the initial pressures on the Spanish officials being like, just open the bars, just open the bars, let people out. Let, that, that's what we do. That's that's a part of, of what Spain is, is, is the nightlife culture. So they reopen bars and then people naturally flock to them. Uh, they're like, yes, back to our old styles. We're all together. You know, the tables were still close together. People sing. Um, one of my favorite bars in, in Barcelona um, does not like singing. And there's like tons of signs being like, you are asked not to sing. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, it's kind of a thing that you are allowed to sing uh, wherever you go. Um, and so all people are singing, chanting, being near each other, watching soccer games, you know, doing the two kisses on the cheeks, whatever. It was only natural that um, there would be an, uh, a rise in cases yet again once the bars opened. And uh, people I've talked to in Spain, both, um, you know, uh, experts and people I've come to meet and my own family, they were appalled by the decision. Of course, everyone likes going to bars. No one's against uh, having a good time. But they knew that during a pandemic, during something like this, reopening bars and, and, and engaging in that sort of close culture yet again was only going to make matters worse. Yeah, I think um, what's important to kind of point out here is that, you know, if you remember back when the first kind of outbreak happened, Spain was kind of slow to deal with it. Um, but, you know, in its defense, it was one of the earliest, hardest hit countries in Europe. And it was, you know, back when we still were just like, this was pretty brand new. Um, but they eventually got their act together and they imposed like a super duper strict lockdown, right? Like this was way stricter than anything that we've seen in the United States. Like don't pretty leave hardcore. your house strict. Yeah, like literally don't go out of the house unless you have like, you have to go to work. Um, but definitely, you know, bars, clubs, restaurants, discos, as I believe they call them. It was no an idea. actual lockdown, un- yeah. unlike in the U.S. It was a real, no kidding, you will be arrested if you go outside lockdown. Yeah, exactly. And and it was and it worked, right? It, it slowed the spread. It helped to, you know, help Spain to really get it under control. But the flip side of that is, you know, like Alex, like you said, people were understandably, like, really frustrated and tired of having to live through that. And so when they finally started to get things under control and everything kind of calmed down, it also happened to be one of the fastest, like, rebounds, uh, the reopening. So they kind of just lifted a whole bunch of restrictions. They allowed bars to be open, I think, till 5 a.m., which, to me, I'm from the South, bars close at 2 
Uh, yeah, but <laughs> I, in, I in, Spain, in Spain, everyone eats dinner at like 10 p.m. So that's yeah. actually not comparatively that late if you just time shift. And I used to not yeah. go out to bars till like one in the morning. So. Yeah, that's that's wild to me. But I mean, essentially, like they reopened and said, look, like, you know, life is back to normal. Yes, you have to wear your mask. And yes, you need to social distance. And, you know, they put in rules like, you know, you can only dance around your tables with your people at your own table. You can't dance with strangers, which good luck with that. Uh, drunk people tend to not, I don't know, be great at following rules or like self-control, uh, which is one of the issues um, that we've seen around the world, actually, when alcohol gets introduced, social distancing kind of goes out the window. Um, but so, you know, it was it was very much like, OK, all bets are off. We're kind of back to normal. And then now we're in the situation we're in now. Yeah, I don't want to focus too much on the sort of specifics of Spanish nightlife culture, though they're obviously important. Right. It, it's really the policy here that, as per usual, that caused the problems. Right. It's not that. Spanish drinking culture has a particularly high transmission rate compared to other drinking cultures. Like if you <laughs> right. Had, right, like if you had a bunch of Germans at Oktoberfest, uh, pretty soon actually when that gets started, sitting next to each other in a beer hall without masks, singing and, and doing the various different dancing things associated with Oktoberfest, you would get a similarly high case rate transmission. When they, when they reopened pubs in the UK, they had to like very quickly, a lot of places had to like shut them back down because they were like, there was one official who literally said something to the effect of, yeah, it's the alcohol, uh, but drunk people are just not good at this. Yeah. yeah it's I the mean, alcohol, stupid. Yeah. And yeah, this is, but it's it's the policy, stupid, right? Like right. if you let people get together and gather and drink and be merry, they're going to drink and be merry. And that just doesn't involve social distancing. No, and the, the other problem here, and this is going to be pretty familiar to a lot of Americans, uh, is the nation's federal structure. So the, the federal government uh, did have some control, right? They declared a state of emergency and then they lifted it. But the decision of how to deal with the individual reopenings was delegated to Spain's 17 different semi-autonomous regions, which have a tremendous amount of control over health policy. And you saw that in a variety of different regional approaches to the reopening policy. So let me go back to kind of answer that uh, and put a finer point on it. So there are two sort of political trends here that matter. One is Spain, ever since the dictatorship ended in 1975, has been fighting over, well, what level of power do the autonomous regions have and what level of power should the central government have? It should be a, a familiar sort of general debate that we have in the U.S., right? After the lockdown ended, the, the central government was like, here, you autonomous regions, you take uh, you take action. You're in charge of your own sort of outbreaks. Uh, and that was both good and bad for reasons that you can, um, you know, basically figure out here. But that that is sort of a constant fight. Uh, and then another reason why there's a lack of political leadership and is leading to bars being opened, you know, based on pressure is because the left-wing government is very weak, uh, barely in, barely in control. It's, it's factional the coalitions sort of loose at this point. Meanwhile, the opposition, the right-leaning, um, PP party, and then also one called Vox, no relation to us, but it is called Vox. <laughs> the far-right um, populist party. So you can see why we would, uh, have some name confusion, some branding interactions there. Right. We're yellow and black, they're green and whatever. Um, Very anyway, awkward to wear your Vox shirt around Spain, I've been told. Yeah, do not do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I believe Weed's host, Matt Iglesias, did that, and it was awkward. Exactly. <laughs> yes, and then I told him that was a mistake. He's like, I got a lot of weird looks. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they've been constantly protesting, saying, like, open the bars, you know, 
that is what it is to be Spanish, go, to be in bars, to be outside, end the lockdown, open up the economy. And because, again, the government is so weak, they kind of bowed to that pressure because otherwise the government could start sort of start to fall or have a lot of issues. And there are other budgetary things that they want to get done, right? It's not just all about the coronavirus. So that's what's happening is that the la- a lack of political power in the central government and this constant fight between the regions and central government is leading to a bunch of mini responses. A lot of, there are a lot of similarities, but because there's no coherence, because there's no sort of national policy, let's say, you're seeing a lot of these pockets open up in Catalonia, you're seeing it in Andalusia, you're seeing it um, in Navarre, and and now Madrid especially, and that's why some regions are sort of better than others is because depending on, of course, where people travel to and just the actual response of those individual regions. Yeah, uh, the president of the regional government in Andalusia uh, basically was saying, you know, we don't have the legal tools that guarantee us the ability to take decisions. So, you know, what you were saying, Alex, like these regional governments were told, okay, you guys handle it. But then when some of them tried to actually institute, you know, stricter lockdowns and things like that, there were like local judges who were pushing back in some cases and arguing that no, only the central parliament has the power to make these decisions. So again, going back to that kind of regional versus federal, you know, government power kind of fight, just to kind of be clear on what we're talking about, like tangibly, that actually meant that some local regional governments couldn't actually, you know, impose the, you know, or they tried to, and then they got pushback. But it also has to do with, you know, the actual response itself. So in terms of like having, you know, contact tracing and things like that, right? Being able to establish um, like a uniform system where you have like staffed units in hospitals and clinics who are able to contact, you know, and do the investigation of, of who people came into contact with that were infected, go find those people, tell them to quarantine, things like that. You had like a vastly kind of disparate system with you know, some areas having really robust contact tracing and some areas not having it. So it was just kind of this hodgepodge that meant, you know, people were allowed to move around. A lot of people weren't finding out that they had been in contact with infected people. So in very tangible ways, this kind of contributed to this kind of collapse of a system. It, this is not an example of of complete federal incompetence, uh, right? Like, I, I want to be, be clear on that point, right? Like, you know, in some countries you've seen just nationally incoherent responses here, some countries, some countries, you know. yeah, unnamed. None in particular come to mind. There are states that are together, maybe. Um, it's it's an example of not and and not just the sort of judges and legal restrictions, but also ideologically and politically motivated pushback. Right, the reason that Madrid has become a particular epicenter is that the uh, regional leader from uh, the center right PP party has been particularly assertive in trying to reopen and resisting calls from the federal government to try to go it slow and restrain sort of return to full activity. And as a result, you've heard calls from from some people in Spain to actually institute a quarantine of Madrid, where people cannot travel in and out of the capital region. Uh, This is not happening. The government has ruled this out, according to the health minister said recently, like, we're not doing that, which... Fair enough, I guess, like quarantining your entire capital region would be a pretty dramatic step, but it illustrates the degree to which the regional hodgepodge of responses, uh, not just for these these legal restriction reasons uh, and not just because the feds don't want them to do something, but because of the actual incentives and ideas of local political actors have caused the response in Spain to be so, uh, well, not great when it comes to the second round. 
And, and let's add another factor here, which is outside of Spain, which is tourism, right? So a, a bunch of countries in Europe, as the first wave sort of ebbed uh, and then went away, they were like, okay, well, basically a lot of the European economy is dependent on tourism. Spain is, a, a lot of Spanish economy depends on tourism. And so what Spain did was like, okay, well, we're doing well. Let's let a bunch of people in. Let's also have Spaniards allowed to travel to the Italys and the Greeces and the wherever else of the world. And then they can come back. Um, and that contributed to it too. It's not surprising that a lot of the epicenters of the sort of second wave started in the major hubs, especially the transportation hub of Madrid um, and Barcelona in Bilbao and elsewhere, that that is where the big airports are. That is where a bunch of people travel to. That's where just big cities where people are and then of high density uh, population. So th this was only natural. It's like there was this, and I remember talking to, you know, epidemiologists at the time being like, well, Europe wants to open now. This seems a little early. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's way too early. What are they even thinking? But of course it makes sense. This is like the, this is what's happening, right? You need that economic boost. Uh, otherwise, a lot of your industry is going to go away. And it's not just like hotels and whatever. It's, of course, construction workers making sure the roads are better for when tourists come in. It's a bunch of air, you know, airport workers. It's a bunch of um, food vendors. It's a bunch of uh, ticket salesmen. Like, there's just a lot of industries dependent upon anything related to tourism. And uh, Spain, unfortunately, especially after the recession, um, in the 2008 financial crisis, a bunch of people lost their long-term jobs and are now sort of dependent on these gigs that are, you know, ebb and flow with the tourism uh, cycle. So that that's that that's another pressure here too. Is not only was there um, people traveling, but also people need these tourist jobs, and so they there was sort of this consideration of let's just open up probably before we should. Yeah, um, I also want to, you know, just kind of point out something that I think Americans are maybe struggling with. I know I've heard this from a few, a few people, uh, which is the question of like, okay, a lot of people in America are completely either ignoring the pandemic or think it's fake or think it's not as bad as it is, you know, portrayed in the media. Um, obviously, we've seen, you know, anti-lockdown protests. We've seen people just openly flaunting uh, rules and social distancing rules. And a lot of people ask me, they're like, okay, are other countries doing this? Like, are people like this in other places or is it just Americans? And America, I will kind of, I guess, assuage your concerns. Yes, there are people in other countries who are like this also. Um, again, most of this is related to policy, as, you know, as Zach aptly pointed out. Um, but, you know, there is a degree of, of personal agency here, right? Uh, all of us, you know, make the decision. And yes, a lot of that is guided by government policy, right? We have to trust experts to say, okay, it's safe to go out. And if they say it's safe to go out, well, you know, I, who else am I supposed to listen to? I guess it's safe to go to the bars again. Um, but at the same time, there are people who are still kind of resistant to the idea that this is a thing. And that for me, it's, you know, kind of inconceivable enough to me that in the United States that people would think it's not that bad, but we are very spread out over a big geographical region um, but in Spain, like, it was so bad there. The first wave was so incredibly, like, deadly and devastating. And there was this quote in the New York Times piece recently talking to this 23-year-old shop assistant uh, who was at the beach at the Mediterranean on a pontoon boat. And he said, quote, I don't think COVID is real. And then he continued, well, yes, it's real, but it's not as serious as they say. It's all a plan to kill the poor and boost the rich. And, like, to me, I just find that, fascinating, uh, disturbing, yes, but also just fascinating that there's still a degree, you know, a, a percentage of people who just refuse to kind of accept reality. And I think that is, in some cases, driving, you know, some outbreaks and some kind of this idea that, 
eh, it's not as bad. You know, we're probably going to be fine, especially among some, not all, young people. Uh, my niece and nephew, who are in their 20s, are incredibly responsible and taking this very seriously. But I also know people in their early 30s who are doing the exact opposite. I uh, Sometimes I, I think that we are a world of, of Jaws mayors. For those of you who don't remember the <laughs> reference um, or haven't seen the classic movie Jaws, uh, it's a movie about a killer shark that is attacking uh, a community, uh, a seaside community, community. In, in Cape Cod. And the mayor, despite there being clear evidence that the shark is just like hanging out and eating people, insists that the beaches stay open because it would devastate the town's local economy uh, during the high peak tourist season in the summer. And, you know, his local police chief and scientific experts are warning him like, no, don't do it. And the mayor's like, yeah, no. We care about business. And then predictably, people get eaten, right? And that's the whole thrust of the movie is and so the Jaws mayor is this sort of universal cultural stand-in, at least in the United States, for somebody who lets short-term thinking and specifically concerns about uh, the economy trump the overarching need to protect human life or long-range consequences of policy decisions. Um, and it's it's almost the inverse, Jen, of what – the person in the that quote that you were reading thinks, right? Like they, he says it's a plot to kill the poor and make the rich richer. But uh, in fact, some of the reopening stuff is about ensuring that businesses continue to profit, right? Like that's a lot of the incentive, especially from right-leaning factions. And now that has real-world consequences for a lot of people. But those consequences, right, for people who are employed and lower down in the food chain can be ameliorated by taxation on the rich and redistribution and government borrowing. And, you know, you spend money to support people who are not working. Uh, that's how you prevent the, like, human toll of the economic losses from some kind of sustained shutdown or slower reopening. But if you're somebody who's ideologically opposed to government borrowing or spending or, or redistributive policy, well, then you're not going to want there to be some kind of uh, extended lockdown. You're going to want to shorten it as much as you possibly can, which explains why uh, sort of fairly predictably you see right-wing populists uh, who claim to be for the people but typically have pretty tight alliances with business interests uh, lining up on – uh, on the uh, on the on the anti reopening side, so, so just want to add a bit more context to that. So when I read that quote, two things kind of came to mind. The first was that Spain really had a like a strong two party system between the socialists, which were more center left than the name implies, and then the PP, which is the center right party. And after the financial crisis, they gained many more parties from the far right and the far left. Um, because the economy suffered so much. And basically those two parties weren't able to get people their job back and get the economy back on track. The reason I mention this is because, well, one, again, the political pressures that we talked about, but two, there are a bunch of Spaniards who believe that, like, everything that's being done is to keep them down, to um, to kind of go against them and keep their economic uh, situation worse. And if you're listening to that and you're thinking, that sounds a little conspiratorial, well, that takes me to point two, which is, Spain is still a young democracy. And in fact, uh, from 39, 1939 to 1975, there was a pretty brutal dictator in charge. And if you know anything about dictatorships, you might know one thing is that conspiracies tend to fly pretty rampantly. Um, and so we're not, Spain is not that far removed from that. Uh, in fact, I'll mention, I won't say who exactly my family says this, although when my family listens to this, they'll know. Um, when anything <laughs> bad happens, 
when anything at all bad happens, this family member goes, it's the fascists. The fascists are, in char- are involved. And like, it's like, <laughs> like there's not enough meat at the supermarket? The fascists. Like the, my, you know, the, the social security check didn't come in as on time? The fascists. Like that, but like that's uh, We not- start using that just in my <laughs> daily life here. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just like, but like it, there is a conspiratorial sort of, um, conspiracy theories tend to run pretty rampantly. And, and so um, it's unsurprising to me for uh, for all the reasons we talked about, yes, for why a bunch of people don't care about the coronavirus, but also just some folks going, eh, you know, I don't believe it to be true. And like, why would I also want it to be true when I have the beach right there and I can go out drinking with my friends and whatever? Like, there's just a lot of factors going on here. But what's interesting is that where I would, where some people thought Spain would be like some sort of, outlier in a sense of, of a second wave because of all these factors we've talked about, it turns out that there are a bunch of issues happening throughout the entire continent. We're going to take well. a quick break right there. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the mystery of the Europe-wide second wave, namely why things seem to be getting a lot worse, but death counts aren't. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L. VAN29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about the second wave in Europe. And yes, there is a second wave of coronavirus, or at least it looks like there is. Uh, In Spain, it is undeniably bad. But in Spain and in other places that have started to see higher levels of cases, uh, you see a lot of these in Eastern European countries uh, like Hungary or Slovenia. You're also seeing a huge uptick in case counts in France. Uh, There hasn't been another huge round of hospitalizations and deaths. The number of cases seems to be increasing across the continent. The number of deaths doesn't. And this is really confusing. Right, it's hard to know exactly what is happening. So, so in this half of the show, I want to talk through what we think the different explanations are for why you might be seeing this sort of paradoxical result, uh, and why a second wave either is a statistical mirage, or is happening and doesn't seem to be killing that many people, or just isn't killing that many people yet. Right, like I, I, let's start with the first explanation: the statistical mirage. I think. Uh, one of the important things to note about Europe is that they're testing a lot more than they were before. Um, so it's possible that in a lot of these countries, maybe you're just seeing uh, higher numbers of tests yield higher numbers of cases, right? Is that is, is that the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible, right? The more testing it, the more testing you get, the more it shows 
how many cases there are. Right, um, right. And <laughs> I mean, it's pretty basic. We've heard Donald Trump say this, although he has said this uh, apparently as an argument for why there should be less testing because America would look better if we had lower numbers. That is not the reality. It doesn't mean that if you didn't test, those cases wouldn't be there, right? It's good to know if there are asymptomatic cases um, because those people, as we've learned now in the six months since this pandemic roughly started, people who are asymptomatic can still spread it to other people who are more, you know, who are at higher risk for serious complications um, and potentially death. So that's certainly possible, right? Having that kind of increase in testing shows, you know, more cases, but that's, it's not a bad thing, right? It's, it's still a good thing. More information is always better. Personally, I'll say I'm skeptical that that's the full explanation. Um, and the reason is that while well, we were talking about what happened in Spain in the uh, you know the first half of the show, and while Spain is an outlier case, both in terms of the the strength of the second wave and in terms of the nature of its reopening, it's very obvious that Spain's fast reopening led to this huge increase in cases. And Spain is not the only country that reopened, right? It would be very surprising to me if all these other countries engaged in a variety of different reopening plans and then at the same time, or more accurately, sort of lagged after the reopening began, miraculously, the tests just managed to catch more cases and there wasn't an actual objective increase despite there being an increase in riskier behavior. It just it, it seems facially implausible to me. On top of that, though, there are also serious backlogs in testing that are happening now. So that seems to suggest that it's not necessarily just testing because the tests are slowing down and people, more people are wanting to get tested, which means people are probably showing symptoms, which means it's probably not only that, at least. I think there's a sort of a, a paradox here in that a bunch of people in Europe are taking it more seriously. So in the sense of one, they want to get more, they want to get tested. But two, when we think about the, the like the, la the, the lower number of deaths, right? Like, why is that happening in tandem? Well, I think part of it is, well, Europe is an old old continent and when the in just a bunch of old people and when the initial sort of wave hit a bunch of you know young folks were still visiting you know their abuelas and their nonas and their whatevers um and the grand mares and uh then they got them sick and they died uh and i know at least in my family and in others now it's like stay away from the old people right keep them safe a lot of what's happening is is stay is is staying within the youth that's why the median age of of who's been infected and who's dying has lowered in Europe is because well a bunch of old people have died in Europe but also people are kind of staying uh, keeping away from them and so I think that's what you're seeing happening here it seems it, it correlates with what you're seeing people going to bars going to the beaches traveling who does that young people um and who are they staying away from because they're taking it seriously old people and so this this I mean that, that may not be the full explanation but that seems the most plausible to me Right. So that's the second the second possible thing I wanted to get into, which is that you are really seeing uh, an objectively real increase in the number of cases, right? It's not just an artifact of increased testing, but it's also the case that the death rates aren't rising and maybe won't rise to to like huge peaks for the reasons I think largely that Alex was just describing, right? If you keep it concentrated among younger people, uh, then, you know, you're less likely to have an immediate rise in deaths. I believe the the statistic in Spain was that the median age went from 60 to 37, which would be really strongly demonstrative uh, that, that that's actually what's happening, right? and that's just why fewer people are dying. And you've seen that uh, in some U.S. states too, right, where there's 
high case counts, like Florida, for example, but the per capita death counts aren't as high as one might expect because infections tend to be concentrated among younger people. Um, it hasn't fully, it has in part, but hasn't fully penetrated uh, communities of older people. However, it really seems like that is less a matter of, at least to me anyway, if but when cases like that, if you're actually seeing an increase among younger people, eventually do start hitting older and more vulnerable populations. Yeah, I worry about that too. I tell my cousins to not see abuela all the time. And yet, you know, uh, but what's interesting here as well, and I, and this is uh, both true in Spain and elsewhere, is that uh, Europe is pretty bad with um, keeping migrants safe uh, and like well-housed. And, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 a lot, and a lot of migrants end up doing jobs that, like, actually are around old people. You know, my grandmother, for example, um, is being taken care of uh, by um, a, a migrant who's very nice. She's great. But that part of the issue is that she does not live in the greatest situation. And she does have to travel outside to go to and from her house to, to go take care of my grandmother. And so, like, you, I think down the line you'll see issues there. Um, and... Basically because, like, you know, migrants for mainly through no fault of their own live with a bunch of other people, live in poor housing, don't have the greatest access to health care and, and other, you know, social benefits. Um, and that's in Spain and elsewhere. And so that that is going to – unless Europe sort of better takes care of migrants that have come to Europe in, in recent years, um, that's always going to be sort of a looming issue. And before we get to the third reason, there's also kind of one more thing on the issue there – and that's, you know, you have to think about the fact that, you know, early on, a lot of the deaths happened in nursing homes and, and senior care facilities. And to stop that, they basically shut down visits to the elderly in these facilities. And that was really good to help stop the spread of the virus. But it was also really bad for both the mental and physical health of a lot of the people in these facilities, right? They're already living sometimes a fairly lonely existence. The highlight of their week, maybe seeing their grandkids who stop by to say hi, um, you know, even just physical contact, being able to hug your, you know, your grandmother or grandfather. Uh, it, it's real, right? That that kind of isolation and loneliness. And, you know, because the, the pandemic started getting better in a lot of these countries, some of these restrictions are starting to kind of loosen and not for any like nefarious reason, right? It's not like, oh, we don't care about old people anymore. It's actually the opposite. It's like, well, let's, maybe these people can finally see their families. I mean, imagine, you know, being in a, a nursing facility, you know, a nursing home for six months or so and not getting to see anybody in your family, right? Beyond Zoom or, you know, Skype. And a lot of these, you know, people don't necessarily know how to use that technology or maybe, you know, aren't able to, you know, have that kind of open communication, um, because of physical ailments or whatever. And so, you know, out of kind of a kindness and a, and a health impetus, you know, they're letting people back in. But again, if those people are not being careful when they're outside in their everyday lives, then they're coming in and potentially spreading it, then you could start to see these clusters again. And that's, a you know, a very real concern. And I don't think, honestly, that there's a very easy answer, right? Because, of course, you want to let people see their families because it sucks, right? It sucks not being able to see each other. But at the same time, you know, how do you balance that against the very real, you know, virus concerns? Uh, this is why I'm skeptical, and this sort of brings us to the third broad area I want to talk about um, of, of possibilities. And this is what I'm worried about and skeptical of the prior two explanations of, of the ability to prevent death counts from increasing again, right? I, I don't think it's going to be sustainable in the long run for there to be significant increases in the number of cases without there eventually being 
a significant number of deaths. Reason number one, I think, is what Jen was just getting at. It's not just that it's it's terrible and painful to keep the elderly separated. It's that after a certain point, it's literally impossible, right? You need younger people to be doing the work in nursing homes, not necessarily the youngest possible people, but certainly younger people who will have more contact with the outside world. And no matter how careful uh, the people who work in nursing homes and other places that are frequented or, or frequented by the elderly or homes for the elderly, no matter, no matter how careful those people are, some of them will eventually get infected when the scale gets large enough just by virtue of having to be people in the world, not because there's anything wrong with those people or they're morally deficient in any way or careless, but because there's just a lot of virus out there. And eventually, because it's so prevalent, someone will get exposed. They'll bring it into work without knowing it because, again, I'm not positing anyone being evil here, and people will start dying. And that's just going to happen. Uh, I would be stunned if it didn't happen at a larger scale than we might be ready to anticipate, right? There's no country in the world that is approaching herd immunity right now. And absent like the really, really high infection rates you would need to do it, then you're, I, I just feel like it's inevitable that these increase in cases necessarily produces down the line higher increases in deaths. So I would actually... I agree to some degree, but I would actually push back a little bit, uh, which takes us to the, I think, the last explanation for why the death count is low. Um, and I, I think it goes directly to what you were just talking about. And that's the fact that we are, you know, about a half a year into this pandemic. And, you know, early on, it was brand new. We didn't know what we were dealing with. Doctors didn't know what they were dealing with. They didn't know how to, you know, even predict what the immune system would do and how bodies would react um, you know, remember when it was just like day after day, it was new symptom and new symptom. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, you lose your sense of smell. And also it's a lung thing and also blood clots, right? Like it was just, we were just learning Don't forget literally COVID day toes. by day. Yeah, COVID toes, right? But, you know, and trying, basically throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick, right? Trying every therapy possible. But the fact is that we're now, you know, fully half a year into this and doctors, and, and, you know, they're quoted saying this, many, many, many doctors saying, look, we just have a better handle on what to do, right? We just know, but, you know, not to say that there's a cure or that they're not going to be deaths, but it's not this like brand new mystery disease, right? They have figured out that things like, you know, steroids can help, you know, slow down some of the out of control immune reactions in some super critically ill patients. Um, there have been, you know, other therapies that have tried and, you know, discarded. There's the the issue of, you know, putting patients on their stomachs in the prone position rather than putting them quickly on ventilation, right, to help improve airflow and oxygen levels, right? We've learned a lot and doctors have learned a lot. And yeah. so because of that, care is getting better and deaths are going down. And I think that is the bright spot if there is one here. Yeah. Just not to say that that you're wrong, that deaths could go up, but the bright spot is that the longer this goes on, the more we learn, the better care gets and, you know, we've also hopefully in, in most of Europe, um, especially, you know, in Spain, doctors are saying, look, we have capacity now. You know, we're not we know what to deal with, even if if there's a you know an influx of cases, we have the protective gear. We have, you know, what we need. We know what to do. And so I think, you know, if there is any kind of positive outlook here, it is that care is getting better. And that means fewer people dying. I, I agree with both of you. 
I will say though, I'm I'm more on the pessimistic side, and since this is already a pretty Alex-centric episode, let's just go all the way um, and say that sports are coming, namely. Soccer. Oh, I knew it. Um, well, and, and he, but here's why this is actually a big deal. So when Spain first, uh, for example, and this is in Italy too and elsewhere, when when the coronavirus was sort of first circulating, a lot of the early spreading um, areas were in soccer stadiums because you know games were happening, leagues were in play, the European wide leagues um, were going on. Having a lot of people crowded together yelling is probably not the best idea in terms of spreading the disease. Precisely. Um, so far, the you know all the sort of the major leagues, you know the Spanish league, the British league, the Premier League, you think the Champions League, all these things, thanks to FIFA and others, have basically been like, look, no one at your games. You you can still broadcast them, but no one's at the games. Inevitably, there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, because, as you know, as rabid a fan as you think you are of your team, I promise you, there are some pretty strong fans in Europe for their soccer teams, and they're going to want to see them um, live and chant for them and be there. And there's already pressure in Spain for this. There's pressure in Italy for this. Um, and I worry that the games will be reopened soon, um, sooner than they should be. And like you, you can, and if you're in the U.S. and you see the pressure that exists for like college football to begin, for the NFL to begin, for more basketball games, all this stuff, um, you get a sense of what's what's happening in some of these debates in Europe. And so I worry that uh, we've already seen Europe open up too early for bars and and beaches and other and tourism. I worry that stadiums are going to open up too quickly. And while there is better care and hospitals are better prepared and and people are more sort of aware. Um, I do worry that a lot of the caution will be thrown to the wind in, in certain areas and, and particularly sort of large stadiums to watch soccer games. And so I, I'm, I'm happy now in the sense of like Europe's in a as good a spot, quote unquote, as it could be in terms of a second wave. Um, and so and I'm happy that they're that it is better equipped. I'm just worried about its future. I, I, I I'm sort of an unzaxed pessimism there. Uh, two other points of concern. Uh, schools. Uh, obviously, we are having a major debate about that in the United States right now, but virtual learning is, as far as I can tell, not happening to the same extent in Europe as it is here because the pandemic hasn't been as bad, and so they're more willing to prioritize student welfare over and, and learning over trying to do everything virtually, uh, which is uh, laudable, and like I get the reasoning for it, and I get that a low case count enables this kind of behavior, but at the same time, it's very clear, based on the early data that we have from American universities and schools, that in-person schooling is a pretty strong vector of coronavirus, and that'll likely spread it not just to the students, but to any parents or grandparents who live with them, as well as the people who work at schools um, who tend to be older. And so that, I think, is, is pretty risky. And second, uh, it's getting colder, right? And Europe doesn't have the, uh, the tropical climate of some parts of the United States, and it gets pretty cold. And so when that happens and you can't have people doing social activities outside and you're forcing them to, if they want to go do any kind of, uh, you know, let's say dining uh, or, or drinking or anything like that, they're having to be inside or crowded together under heat lamps outside. Well, that seems pretty catastrophic in terms of a, a rising case rate to me. And one more thing, because it's not grim enough, the flu, right? Flu season is getting ready to start. To which I say, if you can, uh, go get your flu shot. I got mine yesterday and it's fine. You can just, just a little jab and you get it. So go get your flu shot because experts are saying that this is the most important flu shot you could potentially ever get because even if you do get the flu, it'll help you not get as sick from it, which means fewer people getting really sick and you need to go to the hospital 
means that there's more capacity to take care of COVID patients in the hospital. So everybody get your flu shot. <laughs> uh, we're going to leave you there. This has been a public service announcement from Worldly. <laughs> we're going to leave you there with Jen's public service announcement. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Beerfeld, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcast. Thanks a lot. Uh, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>